The rest of you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 57. You can find that passage printed in your bulletin as well. Um, Years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to France and watch a few stages of the Tour de France bike race, which is a, a really incredible thing, but if you've ever seen it on TV, you know that uh, you just see crowds of people and you see a, a giant group of cyclists, you know, about 100, 150 cyclists go zooming by the crowds. And uh, as you might imagine with events like that, uh, to be a spectator means that you get there hours in advance and you stand along this course, which you know, maybe 100 miles long, you stand along this course somewhere, get there hours in advance and you just wait because you want to have a good view of the cyclists coming by. Well, the organizers of this event know that, you know, that they're going to have spectators out there just standing there for, for multiple hours before the cyclists come by for one to two minutes. And so, so they want to keep them entertained. And they also want something that is going to prepare the spectators for the main event of what's about to come. And so they have this thing called the caravan, which goes before the cyclists. It's essentially like this wonderfully European parade uh, this caravan, it's all the sponsors, they build these floats and they go in advance of the main event and they throw off free stuff off their floats. It's a parade and you, and you go home with all this great, you know, foreign language, French speaking uh, stuff that gets thrown off the parade at you from the caravan in advance. Um, but the whole point of that caravan is to prepare you for the main event that is coming not far behind the parade. Um, Our passage this morning contains a song by an old priest named Zechariah, and he's singing about his son, his son who would be John the Baptist, that name might sound familiar to you, John the Baptist, and we're going to see that it is a song with the purpose of getting us ready for the main event of the birth of Christ. Uh, Up to this point in our passage, the angel Gabriel had visited Zechariah, told him he would have a son. This was shocking on multiple accounts. He and his wife Elizabeth were older than childbearing years and were also barren. They were unable physically to have children. And so Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. And because he doesn't believe the angel, the angel says, okay, then I'm not going to allow you to speak until this happens. And so for the whole course of this process, Zechariah is mute. He's unable to speak. Our passage picks up with the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And, after, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us through it. And God, we ask you to do that just now by your Holy Spirit. Uh, What we need most is to hear from you. And we can't do that on our own. We need your spirit to give us ears to hear. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so as we continue our series this morning uh, in the songs of Jesus, as we prepare for Advent, we're going to look at this song of Zechariah. And we're going to look at it under two headings. We're going to see that it's a song celebrating God's rescue, and it's a song celebrating John's role. So first, this is a song celebrating God's rescue. All right, leading up to the actual song that Zacharias sings, we just read we have the birth of John the Baptist, the first part of our passage. So it says that he was born, they took him to circumcise him on the eighth day, which was the custom. That is also when uh, the family would formally name the child. Traditionally, as we saw, uh, the firstborn male would be named after the father. Uh, this, sometimes this is still how we roll today. We do the same thing sometimes. But Zechariah and Elizabeth do not do this. They insist on the name John because that's what the angel told them to do. And they tell their relatives and their neighbors, hey, we're going to name him John. And then suddenly Zechariah can speak again. Up to that point, he hadn't said a word. So, you know, nine months plus of not speaking, suddenly they say we're naming him John. It's fulfilled. He's allowed to speak again. And this rattles the friends and the family that come to be there at his birth. And they said, what will this child be? They can tell God is doing something with this baby who would be John the Baptist. God is doing something special here. And it leads the father, Zechariah, into a song. And part of this song tells us about God's rescue. It tells us a few things specifically. First we see that rescue comes from outside of ourselves. Rescue comes from outside of ourselves. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Uh, You may have noticed that as Zechariah is singing, he's singing in the past tense. Um, And we heard this in Mary's song, if you were here last week. Um, They were both led by the Holy Spirit as they sang these lyrics of their songs. 
Um, and they were also very familiar with their scriptures, which would be our Old Testament. So commentators agree that they're both referring back to what God has done in the past with his people. He has visited. He has redeemed them. And also what will happen in the future with the coming of Jesus, that he will visit and he will redeem. And so from the beginning of this song, we learn that God's rescue of his people, it must come from outside of his people. We do not have the good inside of ourselves to rescue ourselves. Which begs the question, from what do we need to be rescued? And we're going to see later in this song that we need to have our sins forgiven. This is the fundamental problem with humanity. Starting with the very first humans, Adam and Eve, in the garden. We have rebelled against God and chosen to do life our way rather than his way. And the scriptures tell us that the penalty for this rebellion is forever separation from God. Eternal separation. We cannot be with him because of our sin. The Apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death. It's spiritual death. And if spiritually dead people are somehow going to become spiritually alive, uh, this new life, that rescue, has to come from the outside. It has to come from outside of ourselves. We don't have the resources within ourselves to muster up this salvation. Um, at, at our house, we have fully jumped on the Christmas inflatable bandwagon. I don't know what your position is on inflatables, um, but our front yard collection is slowly growing. We've got Santa with the dog. We've got Mickey and Minnie. Um, though Mickey's hanging out in the shed this year, he's not up. Um, we also added a six-foot corgi this year. Which is amazing. Why would you not add a six-foot corgi to your front yard during Christmas? Um, but if you're one who has Christmas inflatables, think about how they work. It's really simple, right? They've got to be plugged in to a power supply to get that little fan going that keeps them inflated all the time. Without the power supply, they won't inflate. All right, how does the power supply get connected? Someone's got to go plug it in, Right? A human person plugs it in. If we did not plug in the inflatables, they would just be that very sad pile of materials lying in the front yard, which you see when it's really windy or rainy out. Just some plastic, whatever that material is, just laying there. But they cannot power themselves up, and it's silly to even think about that. Our sin is so bad that we need salvation to come from outside of ourselves. We are like the deflated Christmas inflatable lying lifeless in the front yard until someone comes along from outside and rescues us. Salvation does not come from inside of us. And that may not sound that revolutionary to you, um, but we are constantly inundated with advice on how to save ourselves. Um, think about if you're into podcasts, maybe the most uh, common podcasts you listen to. I love podcasts. I've probably recommended or referenced a podcast if I've talked to you for longer than 20 minutes before. Um, but so many popular podcasts right now are geared towards stoic life hack advice. Um, it's all about how to optimize yourself. Uh, the best sleep habits, the best eating habits, the best exercise habits, the best financial practices, the best parenting techniques. Um, how to understand our cultural moment in the best way. How to keep up to date with the, with the latest technology. Um, we are inundated with self-improvement, 
self-optimization. And this is really just a stab at self-salvation at the end of the day. Um, There's a very popular, widely listened to podcast, which I really love, which I won't name, just in case this famous podcaster listens to to our podcast. Probably unlikely. Um, But if if this popular podcast that I'm talking about was your only source of input, your only source of growth and advice and wisdom, then you would be um, on this this journey uh, to constantly improve yourself, to follow all of the advice, and and that if you did, that would lead to your flourishing in some kind of self-salvation. That when when you arrive, if you can arrive, uh, I guess that's it. I guess you just have to maintain then. You have to keep it up. Or maybe there's some more advice that would come down the road. But the message behind it that we're just inundated with is fix yourself. Anything that's hard, fix it. Do better. Hack it. Um, Conquer anything that might be considered a bad habit. And the unspoken goal behind all this, it's some sort of worldly self-salvation. And the Bible says that's impossible. Which, if you've ever tried, then you know that it is impossible. And God knows this about fallen humanity, so he visits us and redeems us. Rescue comes from outside of ourselves. Um, Next, rescue is not a new idea. It's not a new idea. There is promise and fulfillment all over this song. Look at the second part of verse 69. It says, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He is, uh, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Um, this rescuer comes from the house of David. David, the great king of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, the one to whom God promised that one from his family line would be on the throne forever. That is culminating, we see, in the Messiah King, Jesus. Um, this rescuer was also promised through the prophets, which you know, we're doing his Advent readings. Isaiah was a prophet. We heard him promising Jesus is going to come. Here's what he's going to do. Those beautiful things that, that Kate read about. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. This mercy, this rescue, it was promised to their fathers that he would remember his covenant, the oath that God made with Abraham. God made a covenant, this legal binding promise, a guarantee that he would send a rescuer. It's not a new idea. Not a new idea promised all throughout the history of God's people and God is making good on that promise. If you're into music at all, especially like non-mainstream music, sort of indie type music, or you have friends that are into indie music, then you or someone you know might be the uh, I listened to them before they were cool person uh, who, who just knows that you discovered that band before everyone else did. I, when we lived in Kentucky, I had a friend that was sure that he discovered Mumford & Sons. And, and he would be glad to tell you all about it. I, I, could have been true, I guess. I, I don't think it was true. Um, but you know that feeling that, that, hey, like, I was about this band before everyone else was. I, I was listening to this band before they were cool. The rest of you are just now catching on. God has been all about rescuing his people from the very beginning. Even before we even knew we needed it, it's nothing new to him. And, and you might be here this morning and you might be someone who just really struggles to believe that you're lovable. And maybe you feel that in human relationships. You felt it in friendships or, or dating or, or marriage. 
and, and you feel it horizontally, but you also feel it vertically with God, where you struggle to believe that God, how can God love someone like me who's done what I've done or said what I've said? Maybe, maybe that's where you are. Um, in this song of Zechariah, we see that God has been planning your rescue since the beginning of time. For you specifically, he's been planning your rescue. And we see that what motivated it, we actually saw this in our offering passage this morning, John 3, 16. What motivated this rescue? For God so loved the world. For God so loved you that he sent his only son. He came to rescue you. His love has been set on you from the beginning. And his rescue was planned from the beginning. It is not a new idea. Third thing we see about his rescue. It brings real security. Rescue brings real security. Look at verse 71. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Down in verse 74. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Um, so Zechariah is singing about being truly safe and secure from all their real enemies. And Phil Riken points out in his commentary that this would have recalled to mind all kinds of Old Testament enemies of the people of God. The Egyptians, Canaanites, Assyrians, Babylonians, all sorts of Old Testament history comes bubbling up as God's people think back on his rescue from enemies. Maybe in the context of Zechariah it would have been the Roman Empire. Um, real enemies seeking to do real harm those who hated God's people, hated God's people. Um, these enemies, many of them would have actually wanted to kill God's people. Which, uh, imagine actual life being threatened, that's a terrifying prospect. There's a book that came out last year called All the Light We Cannot See. Um, it's a historical fiction novel about the German invasion of France during World War II. One of the main characters in this story is a young French girl named Marie Laure, uh, who also happens to be blind. And uh, much of the book is written from her perspective. So you read these harrowing accounts of, of her having to go from their apartment in Paris um, to evacuate um, and being led through the streets of Paris by the hand of her father, not seeing anything but hearing the panic of people around her, hearing this coming German invasion and occupation. And the author, uh, just, just a little quote to give you a taste of this. Uh, this is uh, Marie Laure and her father. It says, He buttons her into her winter overcoat, though it is the middle of June, and they bustle downstairs. She hears a distant stamping as though thousands of people are on the move. She walks beside her father with her cane telescoped in one fist her other hand on his rucksack, everything disconnected from logic as in nightmares. In a minute they find themselves amid another throng. Voices echo off a high wall. The smell of wet garments crowds her. Somewhere someone shouts a name through a bullhorn. And it just goes on and on and on, walking miles and miles where she ultimately goes to her great uncle's home where she would hide out. But soon that town where she's hiding out is overtaken by German rule. She hears uh, the German soldiers in the streets. She hears them when she is alone as a blind teenage girl upstairs in the attic of this house. She hears the German soldiers open the door and come inside the house. And she describes it from her perspective, only imagining the terror because she cannot see any of it. 
um, feeling unsafe, and then on top of feeling unsafe, being uncertain about what it is that is making you unsafe, is a terrifying feeling. All right, so we don't exactly have the same kind of enemies that God's people had when this was written here. Some around the world do currently risk their physical lives to follow Jesus, lose their lives. They're martyred for the sake of that. It's not right now our context. Uh, But we do face unseen spiritual forces of evil. Evil that we can't see. And we don't know exactly how that works. We don't know exactly how or when we are attacked by these spiritual evil forces. We can't really visualize it, but it's real. It's real, and and that can be really scary to sit in. But, no matter the enemy, physical or spiritual, we are ultimately safe because because of this rescue in Jesus. Paul says later that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Whatever or or whoever is against you, whatever that evil is, it will not win. Uh, Marie Lore in this story, she, she did not know how the war would end. She did not know what would come of this, what would come of her own life. We know how the story ends. Your rescue, it means that you're secure, no matter what. And Zachariah is singing, celebrating God's rescue, filled with the Spirit. This rescue comes from outside of ourselves. It wasn't a new idea. It brings real security. And towards the end of this song, Zachariah transitions And he sings about the role of his son, the role that John the Baptist would play. So it becomes a song that's celebrating John's role. Um, This past week, I watched one of the the U.S. World Cup soccer games with two friends. And and these two friends are like born and raised soccer players, true soccer fans. Um, They know all the players by names. They know the backgrounds of these players. And and I've been a soccer fan for about eight days now. And to be honest, it might have ended this weekend. Uh, Maybe not. It's a great sport. Um, But as I watched the game with these guys, I peppered them with questions about what each player was supposed to do. What was the role of that person? Why are they doing things that way? And they they told me, and as as they explained it, the bigger picture of what was happening made so much more sense. As we look to the role of John the Baptist, it helps us understand the bigger picture of what God is doing. And everything begins to make more sense with the birth of Jesus. So what do we learn about John's role from this song? Um, think back again to the Tour de France, being a fan of the Tour de France. People travel from all over the world to see this bike race. Um, but they travel to see a bike race, right? They don't travel to see a parade, this caravan of vendors. The parade is not the main thing. It's not about the parade. The parade is there to entertain and to signal that the main thing is coming. John the Baptist is not the main thing. He's super important. Super important, God-ordained role, Um, but he's not the main thing. His role is to signal that the main thing is about to arrive. It's all preparatory. Verse 76, we see this, that John will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. How does he do this? Two primary things. John's role was to prepare us for the salvation of Jesus. John's role was to prepare us for the salvation of Jesus. Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Um, At the core of this salvation offered to us in Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus would be the one who would bear the penalty for the sins of his people on the cross. This will be the way 
that our sins will be dealt with. And no matter who you are, or no matter what your background are or beliefs are this morning, this is something we all need. Um, Think back to the ways we talked about how we look inward for salvation. Why do we do that? Um, Because we have a deep restlessness, a deep guilt that something is not right. That our hearts are so fallen, so affected by this sin that it even skews where we look for this forgiveness. Rather than looking to Jesus, we try to self-atone. We seek forgiveness on our own. And we often try to do this by trying to balance out the scales of good and bad in our lives. Uh, If we feel like one side of our scale is weighted down with the bad things we've done, then we anxiously try to add to the good side of the scale to try to balance it out and maybe tip it the other direction, direction, all while leaving Jesus totally out of the picture. A few examples. Uh, Maybe it's dealing with an increasing dependence on alcohol or or overconsumption of of alcohol, drinking too much. And, And so... Um, and so how do we try to tip the scales? Uh, all right, we're, January's coming up. Dry January, right? I'm just going to prove that I'm good, that I'm fine, that this isn't a problem. I've got it. I'm going to prove, I'm gonna prove that, it's, that, I, that I can handle it. Uh, maybe it's uh, a short temper with our children. And, and you know, we're like, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I feel really guilty and ashamed that I keep losing it with my kids. And I'm, ju- I'm, I'm going to be nicer to my kids. Uh, and after a long day when I'm tired, I'm going to come home and I'm going to be nicer, I'm going to be more gentle. I'm to be more kind. And so we, we just we make it the goal to, to be nice. Maybe it's dealing with a battle against lust and pornography. And, 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 and we're just sick of struggling with it. And so, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to go a day or a week or a month or a year. We're, and we're not going to give in to that temptation. We're going we're gonna to resist. And, of course, whatever the area is, right, striving for purity, for, for goals in these areas, that's not bad in and of itself. But often, if you think about that scale, we can use these human measures of trying to tip the scale back in the other direction and outweigh the bad things we've done in these other areas. We're like, one day of abstaining from these things makes up for one day of giving into these things. If we can just tip the scales in the right direction, then we will self-atone. We will feel forgiven for it. And the message that John the Baptist prepared the way for that Jesus would bring is that we can't do that. Our sin must be brought to the cross. Uh, where we see a Savior actually taking it upon Himself, uh, the abuse of substances, our short temper, our lust, where He actually takes those things upon Himself on the cross and deals with them, where He takes the wrath of the Father upon Himself. And when He does this, when He deals with our sin, when He forgives us, we're given a new identity. And with that, a new power where we can say no to these things. And then, sure, build in all the accountability to help all that. But not to self-atone for our sin, but as a way of living out this new identity as a forgiven son or daughter. And so if you just feel beat up by your sin this morning, and just really exhausted of trying to tip the scales in the other direction by by good behavior, uh, know that Jesus stands ready to forgive you. He stands ready to forgive you. He's inviting you up to the cross uh, to his real, with your real specific sins to experience his real forgiveness from him. And that's really good news. And it's so counter to what our hearts naturally believe and lean into that John the Baptist had to come first before Jesus and tell us that this salvation that Jesus would bring at its core is about the forgiveness of our sins. 
Second thing we see, John's role was to prepare us for the light of Jesus. The light of Jesus. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. If you've driven on uh, Lawrence Road recently down by Willie Taco towards downtown or turned onto Haywood or Woodruff over day, you've likely seen all the new work they're doing on the Swamp Rabbit Trail extension, which is great news, super exciting. I've been on the trail a few times since they started working on it, including uh, recently I went on a run with a neighbor in the morning before the sun came up, and it was so dark, so dark when we turned onto the trail. You know, it's brand new. It's not been officially open yet, so there's no one back there. There's no lights. There's, there's nothing back there. But we turned on the trail. It was so dark. Um, immediately, my neighbor clicked on his running light that he had with him, and instantly the trail lit up in front of us. And the anxiety of like navigating our footing or wondering what was out there was instantly gone. And we know that feeling. There's something so comforting about turning on a light when it's dark. Um, Even something as simple as, uh, uh, you know, turning the lights on on your Christmas tree when you come home in the evening. Uh, It just just feels like, all right, this is right. Um, This is the way it's supposed to be. Uh, John the Baptist would come to prepare us for the light that would shine into our darkness. And he says, it's like a sunrise dawning uh, after a long, dark, cold night. And this sun will rise and shine down on those who are sitting in darkness. And this light will guide our feet into the way of peace. No more anxiety or fear of the darkness. No more wondering what's out there of not knowing where to go. Jesus will come as light in the darkness. And he's the light that we were created to be with. And so the question for us is, are you in the light? Do you know this light of the world? Uh, Because sometimes you can be in the darkness for so long that darkness becomes normal to you. Do you know this light? John the Baptist came to prepare us for the light of Christ. It's a song that celebrates this rescue that God is doing. It's a song that celebrates the role of John the Baptist. But ultimately, what is this song about? What is Zechariah singing about? This is really a song about God's mercy. It's mentioned three times in the passage. It's a song all about God not treating us as we deserve, but instead showing us mercy in Jesus. Do you know that God? The God that is merciful to you that does not treat you as your sins deserve. Uh, This whole true story of redemption promised long ago with people like John the Baptist playing key roles leading up to it. What does it lead up to? It leads up to God showing mercy to his people in Jesus. Won't you come to this merciful Savior this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are merciful You do not treat us as our sins deserve. And God, we see that in the unfolding of your redemptive history in your word. This long planned rescue of your people. John the Baptist leading the way. All for what? The merciful Savior Jesus to come and rescue us. Father, prepare our hearts for his return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.